everybody, it's Alex here and welcome to Clinical Practice Made Easy. I'm really looking forward to sharing today's topic with you because what I'm going to do is talk to you about 14 reasons why patients don't respond to care. We probably can already think of a few, but I think that there are many, many reasons that we don't necessarily account for when we're looking at why a patient isn't responding. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to go through each of those individually and then give you a few pointers on how we can prevent these issues. So the first thing is, and one of the first reasons that I see that patient doesn't respond to care is that they've had it for many, many years. So as healthcare practitioners, um, we quite often have an expectation that we will have a very quick result because the type of care that we offer usually gives quick results. What we can do, though, is forget that there is a healing process at play. And if somebody's had a problem for a very long time, not only is there the healing of the tissues, but there's also trying to correct any compensations or issues that have developed surrounding that problem. So if someone's had something for years, quite often things are ingrained, their lifestyle can be ingrained too, and it can take longer for them to respond to care. It's pretty obvious, that one. Second one is that they aggravate it too often. So we're doing the right care, they're having the right techniques, they're in the right frequency, but what they do in their day-to-day -day life basically aggravates the issue. So I see this most commonly probably with manual laborers, people that have got a job, they're self-employed, they can't afford to stop working while they're having care. And I wouldn't usually recommend that anyway, because what I like to do when I look after a patient is make sure that their body can um, do the thing they need it to do. And if they stop doing that, then it's challenging when they start doing it again on their journey. So how can we overcome this? Um, this is tricky. I think this is to do with how we recommend uh, and how we communicate. So what I like to do is recommend enough care to factor in the fact that they're probably going to re-aggravate it over time. Sometimes they can stop doing stuff. You know, for me, it's going on the trampoline is probably not a priority um, right now, but um, a lot of the time they have to keep doing things. So we need to factor that into our recommendations. Second thing is that we haven't had, third thing, sorry, we haven't had the opportunity to um, basically change the way that their nerve circuits work. So every time we do um, techniques with our patients, if we're doing some manual work, we are changing the way that the body um, responds. So we're putting in an input, the body then responds and adapts to that by creating neural synapses. Those synapses then refire um, to create a faster response in the body. It's our brain's way of conserving energy. Learn something, create a circuit, then it can do it automatically. If the body's been using an old circuit for a very long time, it's going to think it's most sufficient or efficient um, to use that circuit again and again. So quite often we have pain circuits that it will reuse, but we definitely have movement patterns and circuits that we use. So in order to, for care to have a result, we need to be using some techniques with them and exercise as well to significantly change and develop new circuits. And that process takes time. So one or two sessions is not going to create a new neural circuit that's going to last. So I think sometimes what will happen is we'll get a short fix and then patient won't respond longer term or they'll plateau. So we need repetition. The fourth thing is considering scar tissue. So if we've got an inflammatory response, we're going to have um, tissues um, going into the area like collagen and fibrin. That's going to create scar tissue and then it's going to remodel and reheal. 
if we don't factor, factor that process in, and that process can take six weeks and above, then potentially we're only managing inflammation. To manage scar tissue takes a lot longer. And um, sometimes we know that scar tissue doesn't fully repair. It's going to cause restrictions in tissues. And that means we then have to factor that in to the prognosis or create um, ways that the patient can use their body in a different way to overcome that scar tissue. But you are sometimes going to see a delay in response if they've got a lot of it. Now, we know that stress plays a big part in um, patient responding to care because it's going to activate our fight or flight, it's going to affect our cortisone levels, um, it's going to shoot them up and then dip them and that means our natural anti-inflammatory goes which means we've got an increased chance of having um, more pain and more inflammation for a longer period of time especially if this is chronic. So we need to have um, some lifestyle change in there with the patient and give the patient some awareness of um, how stress impacts them physically also you're going to get tension in muscles you know there's a natural desire to protect your heart and your brain which is why we bend forward and raise our shoulders and put our necks down um, because we're trying to protect them physically and that's going to have an impact on the way our muscles work so i would always consider factoring stress into a recommendation um, and normally for us we do a three phase of care approach you can't always address stress in the first phase of care because most of the time people are looking for just a result to help them with their pain but the rehab phase is usually a good time to work on mindset because they've got more clarity they also trust you because they've seen results significance is a big one so significance is a human need and that's the need to feel important or special or that we're making a difference and it can be used positively or it can be used negatively. So if it's used positively, we might be driving forward, putting ourselves out there, um, trying to help people in a, in a more public way. If it's used negatively, it could be that um, we get lots of um, attention if we are in pain. Now, it's okay to be looked after. Um, it's very important to be cared from. But what can happen is we can get something called a secondary gain which means that um, we the, the need that we get met for lay, maybe love and connection becomes more important than getting over the pain of the problem. And we think we're going to lose love and connection if we get well. This is hard. I do a whole session on managing this um, because it's a very deep topic. But it is definitely the reason that some patients don't respond quickly because they have a block to getting better. So just identifying that to start can make a really big difference. The incorrect diagnosis, I don't think this happens that much. I think sometimes it does with um, rotator cuff problems and frozen shoulder, and sometimes it does with facet irritations, SI problems, and discs. If you're putting a differential diagnosis of those things um, in your cases, if you think there are some maybe early signs of, then normally it's okay. And for us in practice, if we think somebody's got disc signs, we do, like I say, another whole session on discs. Um, one of the biggest signs that I see in practice is muscle spasm. It's not leg symptoms or arm symptoms. Usually that comes later. So we would start looking after that person as if they were a disc from the very beginning, um, more of a chronic than an acute disc, um, which means that you don't really don't have a problem with an incorrect diagnosis because you've been looking after it as, it, as if it was the worst case scenario anyway. Same with the adhesive capsulitis or frozen shoulder. 
quite often a rotator cuff or an impingement syndrome turns into that because the scar tissue that's laying down to heal and repair the rotator cuff is getting attached to the capsule. So if you're looking after it with a mind that it might be a adhesive capsulitis anyway, you might even present, prevent it from happening in the first place. You'll never know, um, but it's better not to have that problem. The type of care we offer or the treatment um, we offer, um, sometimes it's, it's the question is, is it the right one? Now, we can definitely use the techniques that don't um, work best for patients, and it takes time, even if we've looked after many cases that have got the same um, presentation, to, to make sure that our care is bespoke for the individual in front of us, because everybody's different. If we're factoring the overfiring of the nervous system and the underfiring of the nervous system, most of the time we'll end up using the right techniques. So we always start gently and build up, because what we want to avoid is the nervous system overfiring because that's when a patient's going to feel worse just because um, their body's working so quickly that they can't cope with that information. So what we would do is start them gently, but also layer techniques. So we wouldn't try two techniques and then have a, then try two other techniques and then try two other techniques or try 10 techniques in one go and then not know what's worked. We would try one technique, keep that ticking over and then layer on another one a couple of sessions later, but keep that ticking over so that over time you've got an opportunity for things to improve but also you've added new techniques in so that you're not waiting six sessions with one technique and then the patient's not responding and you haven't got a backup plan. So definitely review techniques, um, but I would say it's not always the first thing. Sometimes just a patient just needs time. Um, can be Another one can be appointment spacing and they can be spaced too far apart. So it's the right diagnosis, it's the right technique, um, it's the right um, approach for the patient, but the time frame between sessions is too big. Each session builds on the session before, especially if we're working at correcting neural pathways. So if we have a gap that's too big, the body will just resort to its, its um, learned resources to cope with the problem, especially compensations, and then you can have a plateauing of symptom. We then think that that's a patient that's not responded to care, but it's just that their appointments are too far apart. If they've got aggravating factors, they've got inflammation, they've got stress, that can definitely be a factor. Under-recommending is um, a pretty hot button, and most practitioners will under-recommend because they're fearful of being unethical, or they're fearful of asking for too much um, investment from the patient. The big issue um, with under-recommending is our recommendations set our expectations. So if you tell a patient it's going to take a certain frame of time and it doesn't, basically what you've done is you've not delivered. So what I would always say is err on the side of caution with recommendations because you can always reduce a recommendation. If somebody's responding really well, you can always reduce it. It's much, much harder to increase the number of sessions when you said it would take less sessions in the first place. Expectation issues are a big one, and this can definitely have an impact on a patient's ability to respond. So if a patient doesn't think they're going to improve from care at all when they start, usually they'll be right. So I would always check with the patient and ask them a question, do you actually think this is going to work for you? And if they say no, then we probably shouldn't be beginning in the first place. If they say possibly, I'll be saying, well, are you open to it? Because if you're, if you're not open, sometimes your body's not open either. Sometimes practitioners, we have higher expectations than the patients do. 
So the patient might actually be really happy with the improvement that they're making on the time frame they're making, but because we want to be really good at what we do, um, sometimes the Superman pants are going on there, we actually get disappointed when they aren't where we expect them to be, and then the patient feels like they're not where they're supposed to be. So we have to be really careful that we've got our expectations right as practitioners. And then I think the most common expectation is the patients are going to improve quicker than they do. Um, and we want to give patients hope. We actually want them to improve really quickly. But a lot of the time, cases are complicated and it doesn't always work as easily as that. Another one is the patient not following the plan. You've got to make sure you've got a plan in the first place, but it might be that they're not sticking to their schedule. They're not doing their exercises. Um, they're not following your advice. And um, normally this is not because people don't know what they should and shouldn't be doing. It's usually because whatever they're doing is more important to them than their health. Now, if you don't have a roof over your head, you aren't going to be so worried about your back pain because it's your survival. So a lot of the time people will overwork, not because they're workaholics or they've got, they want money. It's because they want security for them and their families which then means they won't do the exercises or stick to the schedule. One of our jobs is to say, my job is to make sure that you can work so that you've got the security to look after your family. And the great thing about what we do is it doesn't take very long. Your body's healing wherever you go next. So one of the major values um, of having care is you don't have to stop working because you're sick, but also we get to worry about that for you. And then you can worry about making sure you're providing for your family. Poor communication is probably one of the biggies. <clears throat> and I think if you look at all the things that I've listed already in, in this cast today, most of them come down to how we've talked about the problem. I had a, a wonderful um, associate working for me and they had a patient that just was not on board and committed to the plan. Um, they work in manual labour, they are um, a, a plumber and they're always in little corners and under um, sinks and they can't stop work because of their family. They've had care before and it was a quick fix and they got them out of trouble, it put a patch on it. Um, but now the problem's back again and it wasn't in our practice. So the patient's expectation was it's going to take one or two sessions, I'm going to be back on doing what I want to do. Um, and now we can see from their findings that they're presenting with a disc herniation. It's not going to happen. However, the patient um, heard the recommendation, but they weren't committed to it. They weren't on board. So what we knew was this patient's not going to get the result that they expect because they aren't going to do what we're asking them to do. So when I spoke to the associate, I was like, do you think this is a technique and, and um, care issue or do you think this is a communication issue? And of course, it's a communication issue. So what we said to the patient was that we can see that you've got these priorities, these things are really important to you, and it's really important to us that you can do that. Do you think you would be able to be open to committing to this plan? And they may say yes, no, etc. And then we can talk it through. But one of the things we can do is we can ignore that. And actually, it needs to be discussed in the room because if we're really committed, we really want to help that person. We need to make sure that they want it as much as we do. And then the last reason I think patients don't respond in the time that we expect, and I'm sure there's more than the reasons I've given you, but one of the big ones is, is that it's a red flag. So if we're reassessing our patients consistently 
a lot of the time will pick up red flags and I do a whole session on red flags too. One of the things that practitioners do though is they beat themselves up if they didn't see it in the new patient and then they see it later on in the case. Sometimes red flags just aren't visible. We don't, the first sign of a red flag might be no response. They might not be um, having any change at all. So um, as long as we're picking it up and then we're taking some action and we're asking for imaging, we're referring out, we're doing whatever we think we need to do, that's okay. So finding the line between when to refer out um, and whether it's all of those other reasons can be really difficult. So I would say sometimes it's good to just do both at the same time. Keep them on in care so that you are giving them um, all the time their body needs to heal and repair if they're a slower responder and you're working on all of those factors, unless it's contraindicated. If it, but if it isn't, at the same time, you can send a message or write a letter to the GP so that while they're waiting for that process, they'll either be better by the time the referral comes because they've had more time or there'll be the referral come in time because it wasn't care wasn't going to work for them and they haven't then delayed. Sometimes red flags will be urgent and obviously you just need to refer those straight away. So I appreciate that. So just to summarise, really, a lot of the time patients just need more time um, than we give them, um, give the body credit for. The second thing is, is they need time for lifestyle change. And sometimes that will have a big impact on why they're not responding. They need repetition in care to work on those neural pathways. They need to be reassessed regularly so we actually know whether they're responding or not and then take action if it's, if it's not what we expect. They need a really good plan because we've got to remember that our recommendations set our expectations and they need really strong leadership and communication. And for us, that is dialogue. That is communicating as two adults together and discussing the problem and coming up with a solution. And it's asking really good quality questions. I hope that you've got some value from this call. If you've got any questions, email me at alex at wellbeingrev.com. We can't wait to see you guys again soon. Take it easy. Thank you.